for me, the require and expect are two different words. Okay, they're two different words for me. I, I take, you know, time with words, and and I I, I want to make sure I understand what they mean. So, is it expect or require? Uh, I kind of thought of him. I thought, you know, he's kind of hiding the ball here a little bit. You know, with God, I don't think God in His Word. When we try to understand what expectations or he expects of us, God's not trying to hide the ball. He's not trying to confuse us or not trying to, if you will, uh, be where we have to make a lot of guesses. I think he's, God's expectation or what we can expect from him is pretty clear and, and not something that we have to have a lot of drama about. I think about expectations in relationships. You may have heard of this. There was a guy and his wife that had a problem and they were upset with each other. And he decided he was going to give her the cold treatment. And he wasn't going to talk to her. And uh, <clears throat> I have a friend that did that one time. It didn't work out that well. And uh, decided he wouldn't, wouldn't talk to her. And she wouldn't talk to him. So he had a business trip he had to go on uh, starting on Monday. And so he wrote her a note and said, Would you please wake me up at 5 a.m.? <clears throat> Gave her the note. So the next day on Monday, he woke up at 8 a.m. and was beside himself as to what had happened. And as he's climbing out of bed, he sees a note on the side of his bed stand. It's 5 a.m. Wake up. <laughs> I don't think that's the way he expected it. I, I think he had some other expectations that didn't expect it to go that way. So expectations, we live in a world and a life where, where those are real. So I want to ask you to consider with me a couple of ideas today. Uh, number one, and by the way, on your handout today, <clears throat> while I was sick and laying in bed, I had a couple of thoughts, which can be dangerous. Um, but I've got on your handout there, Socrative.com uh, with the login, that kind of stuff. I, I've wondered <clears throat> at times if I don't need to make a little more space for questions, for clarification. So I'm going to use Socrative there today. If you have a question or a clarification, you don't have to give any information. You just go to the site, log in, put the room number, and you're there. Uh, so there's no, they don't ask for, uh, for any information. But in, in the event that you have a question, I've got it here, and I'm going to actually try to stop at a certain point, about 1130. And uh, <clears throat> no, I'm not doing that. And, uh, and try to maybe field some of these. In, in a, the tip, I, I'll tell you why. I've thought about this, and maybe you don't agree with it, and maybe... That's okay. Um, <clears throat> there are a lot of places at Crossing where we have big rooms, lots of people, lots of stuff going on, but sometimes don't have a, an opportunity to ask a question or to get some clarification. So I'm trying to use this for introverts who aren't going to ask something out loud. You know, that's okay. That's fine. Um, for, for introverts, can use Socrative there. And I, there, your name is disabled. There's no way for me to know who it is. So uh, anyway, we'll do that. Okay. <clears throat> uh, the first thing I want to say is what can we expect from God is this. I think you can expect, here, there's the big, I'm still on the antibiotic, so here, I'll get up here in a second. <clears throat> the first thing what you can expect from God is this. You can expect that God is better than you thought. <clears throat> God is better than you thought. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah, an Old Testament passage that has always intrigued me. Uh, <clears throat> and over the last few months, I've just spent some time uh, sort of digging around in it. <clears throat> and uh, in my Bible, and the, it's in the Old Testament, kind of sort of in the middle, 644. Go to Isaiah 53, <clears throat> which is a, a fairly, uh, 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 if you will, uh, famous passage <clears throat> about this. It, it actually starts in 52. But I'd like for you to, to think about whether or not we can expect God uh, to be better than we think. That, that he, he, maybe, maybe he is better than we actually think. Now, I'm going to start uh, in verse 13 of chapter 52. And I'm just going to work through this a little bit. We won't have time to do all of it. But in Isaiah 52, verse 13, these words are recorded here by the prophet. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations, this idea of purification. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. 
Now remember, the Bible doesn't have verses and chapter headings. That was put in by the Masoretics. And so you just keep reading. So watch this in 53. Who has believed our message? Now the inference here is <clears throat> who? Who's believed the message? Nobody. <laughs> the inference here in Hebrew, the way it answers itself, is that who's believed this message? In other words, his servant will prosper. He was marred more than any man. His form and his form more like the sons of man. This is considered to be a reference to Jesus. That it picks it up in 53 when it says, And to whom has the Lord been before? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a parched ground. Notice these personal pronouns. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. No appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now, the word esteem there is this idea of evaluate. Verse 4, verse, surely he bore our griefs, he himself, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. I, I, I want to I stop here for a minute. And it just some thoughts I've had about this passage I've been working over. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things that seems to show up in this passage here is the word esteem. Notice here, uh, verse uh, 3 of chapter 53, we, he was despised and we did not esteem him. We didn't evaluate him as good. And then in verse 4, when we see his griefs and sorrows he bears, we esteemed him what? Stricken and smitten of God. Here's my thought process here. <clears throat> this passage, if you will, <clears throat> helps us to understand that you can expect that God is better than you thought. Here, not him. That's not him. <laughs> In his revelation of himself. God is better than you can think about. In his revelation of himself. I'm going to come back to Gladwell here in a minute. Um, <clears throat> The entire passage indicates here, spoken of Jesus, that God is working through his son and, if you will, uh, delivering humanity and delivering human beings. And when people see him, what do they think is happening? There in verse 4. What do they think is happening when Jesus is doing all this work? God is what? God is punishing him. He is smitten of God. He's stricken by God. Here, here's what I want you to just to kind of dial in, if we can today here a little bit, is this idea that God is better than we think because when we see, if we will, we see Jesus being treated like this, the default in our thinking is God's hurting him. God's trying to punish him. This has been a fascinating passage for me as I've kind of dug around in this over the years to say, that's the way I think. Don't you sometimes think that when somebody's going through a difficult time, does it ever default to you to think, gee, I wonder what they did? It seems crazy to us that whenever we see people having trouble or difficulty, the sort of default setting in our mind and heart is, well, we must have done something wrong. Or, or there must be something wrong here that they've done. They're being punished. The scripture here says, we esteemed him wrong. We esteemed him as smitten of God, but he was actually the servant of God. I want to ask you to consider this, <clears throat> that sometimes <clears throat> what we need to understand is that God is better than we can think. God is better. His character, his revelation of himself is better than what we might imagine. I, I don't know where all this stuff is and how it's, where it's located. That when something bad happens, we sort of ascribe it to God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that what he believed it was, was he called it the God of the gaps. That when things happen that are too hard to kind of manage, or things happen that are too difficult to sort of get our head around, it seems to be, to some people, not to me, but some people, a comfort, it must be God's will. It must be God, what God is doing. And so as a consequence, we look at life, we look at circumstances, and often we put God in that gap to say, well, must be what he wants. Must be what's going on here. 
I just want to encourage you or maybe incite you to look at this. We esteemed him stricken. But that's not the truth. We esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But the truth of the matter is that he is God's servant working for the salvation, if you will, the entire understanding of of humanity. See, Israel considered this passage, this notion, or the the people that, that God was punishing him and hurting him. What is said about God's servant here is hard to believe. The gospel should elicit this kind of response. That this one who is serving God is not being stricken by God, but is serving God. Think about this. Not stricken, serving. I read a guy some years ago that said this, that if our response to the gospel isn't this, that's, that's too good to be true. We probably haven't heard the gospel. What if we reject any views here that are not consistent with understanding this is God's servant serving and working and uh, att- bringing salvation to the world? Notice what it says. We esteemed him smitten of God, but look at verse 5. But, now the, that conjunction there suggests change. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He's, he's not being punished by God. He's doing the work of God. He's not being afflicted by God. He's doing the work of God. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging were healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. He's God's servant not being smitten. I'm, I'm just asking you to consider that God may be better than you think on your default setting. That, that, that God may, when you try to evaluate the nature of God or the nature of reality by just the experiences of reality, you may be making this mistake. Does that make sense? Do, do you see this? Do you have this struggle? That you tend to evaluate the nature of God, sometimes, not always, based on experiences and things in life. I hear it pretty often. I hear it pretty often. Let's see. Is there a question about this? Aha, see, I have the technology here. No question yet. Come on, people. Anyway, does this make sense? Do you see this here? Look, we esteemed him. What? Stricken, smitten, and afflicted of God. Yes. There is. I mean, sure, there is a reason. Don't think that everything happens for a reason. But there is a reason that everything happens. Where the problem comes in, in my opinion, again, thoughts and opinions as a teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community, church, elders, or leadership. Some of those reasons are vile. Some of those reasons are ungodly. Some of those reasons are terrible have nothing to do with God, have everything to do with the fallen world in which we live, have everything to do with the, 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 the difficulty of this fallen, broken world. So, yeah, I, this is a difficult thing because we have this sort of default. I mean, I hear my students will say, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. I say, yeah, some of them are really pretty stupid. <laughs> some are really terrible. I mean, really, some are really terrible, Right. Some are, some are really terrible because, again, we live in a fallen world where sin and difficulty and problems are the case. It's not, it's not like God is just micromanaging every little detail in life and saying, you can't do anything but the right thing. Uh-oh, we got a couple of people now. We smoked a couple of people out. Uh, the, it says here, the topic has caused confusion for me because God does discipline his children. How can we know the difference between suffering that is a result of the fall and discipline from God? <clears throat> well, I, generally, in a, in a general sense, I'd say this. Discipline is restorative. Punishment is retribution. So if you think what's happening to you, if God is trying to 
discipline you, what's he trying to do? Teach, correct, restore. The, the notion there is not punishment, not you've done wrong and so now I'm going to hurt you or you've done wrong, now I'm going to get you. Discipline is always has as an outcome the restoration, the correction, the, 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 the health of the person to bring them to some understanding of what's right and what's good. And so, you know, my dad used to say to me all the time, I didn't believe him when I was 12, but he would say to me, I'm disciplining you here because I love you. I didn't believe it. <laughs> well, I was immature, you know. When I heard that belt coming through the air like a miss incoming missile, I'm serious, it, it sounded like a... And then it made contact, you know. I didn't believe him. I didn't believe him. I thought, no, you're just trying to hurt me. But, but discipline, discipline is God's active role to correct, to restore, to make right. Now, when you say suffering, suffering has to do with living in a fallen world where things happen because we're part of this. Go back and read Romans 8, beginning at verse 15 about the universe and what's happening with that. That, that, we're, that we're struggling, we're, we're straining in this world because of the fallenness of humanity. Okay, that's a, that's a good question. Yes? I'm saying punishment is retribution, retributive, uh, retribution. Uh, discipline is, is corrective and uh, uh, healing. You know, I, I want to correct why you did this so you can not do that again. So it can be fixed. Here's a question. If a young girl asks you why God allowed her to be a child trafficked by her parents and abused by others, how would you answer her? Slowly and carefully here. No, I kid you now. Again, you're, you're going to get my theological position on this stuff. You don't have to agree with it. God has given human beings a measure of freedom. And some people do terrible things with it. And that's why there will be a day of reckoning someday. But to assume that God wanted that, to me, is a moral nightmare. That would make God the devil. <laughs> that God has given human beings a measure of freedom. And people use it and abuse it and misuse it. And God's not going to say, well, you can have some freedom until you do something stupid or hurtful, or painful, then I'll, I'll stop that. He's not going, to, not going to do that as far as I can tell. doesn't prove that. Yeah? Uh-huh. <laughs> she, said, she said, if I remember correctly, God was pretty hard on his son. I... Personally, I disagree with that. I don't think he's hard on him at all. I think his son did a hard thing. His son was willing to do a hard thing to bear the sins of the world. Yeah. Well, he did a hard thing, but I don't think the father was hard on him. I think the father was with him every step of the way. And he did that it was hard and it was terrible but i i don't i don't personally i'm just you know you don't again have to agree but this notion again i think we have to get help with this that that everything that happens is somehow god's will the bible says doesn't say everything that happens is good it says god causes all things to work together as we respond to him and get like that so i'm going to yeah Well, I, he's asking the question, it, whenever something's happening to us, is it retribution or is it discipline? And does God punish believers or does he bring them back to the fold? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm, this is going a lot of different ways here today. <laughs> um, let me, let me un see if I unpack that real quick. No, no, I want to I unpack real quick. Um, 
No, 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 no. <clears throat> Here's a go. I, well, I think this relates to the idea that we tend to evaluate bad things and situations that happen like they're smitten of God, God's whacked them, God's after them. Two things I would say. There's a corrective in the New Testament, I think. Um, it, it comes down, I think, whether it's discipline or punishment. Whether or not we understand that what's happening is going to be used or enable us to be more of the person that God wants us to be. Punishment has no end in it. Punishment has, use the word, punishment has no goal at all. Now, I don't, I, again, this is Cliff, okay, here. Uh, I think there's a reformulation of the New Testament in Romans 1 that God's wrath is understood as God turning people over to themselves. That's in Romans 124, 126, 128. Paul, Paul is trying to help people understand this idea. Is, is the wrath of God something? Yeah, still here. But what is it? It's God turning people. It says, and God gave them over to their own desires. God gave them over to their own lust. God gave them over to a depraved mind. There isn't any notion that God is doing anything. that He's just saying, okay, there you go. So Paul's trying to reconfigure that to help them understand. God's not up there you know, whacking people. And trying to knock them out. He's saying that the, the, you know, the, the, the difficult thing here would be to be turned over to yourself. So I would again say that, that punishment has no goal except punishment. Where discipline has goal in it. To make me more of what I need to be. To make me more of what Christ, if you will, has. So the, these are big issues. These, these are, uh, I, I see these all the time. So I want to just ask you to consider that we're going to move on to this next one here. What today if you begin to reject thoughts about God that are not specifically consistent with what the Bible tells us about Jesus? Put on some Jesus lenses. This is where I think the problem is, that we, that we need to, to, to evaluate our understanding of who God is based on, if you will, this uh, understanding of who Jesus is. We, we, we evaluate, we, we look at life, we look at reality through the lens of who he is. And so do we evaluate? Go to Hebrews chapter 1 if you want to on that, okay? Second here, let's look at this. God's better than you think in his continual work, in his continual work. Go to your table of contents if you'll find the book of Hebrews. What can you expect from God? I think he's better than we think. I think we can expect him to be better than we typically think. Hebrews eleven forty eight. Hebrews eleven forty eight. 48. That's, my, that's not the... Chapter, that's the, uh, we're going to seven. Um, I'm sorry, that's the page number of my Bible. I'm talking to myself up here, okay? I'm having to, I'm, leave me alone. Here we go. Yeah, no, that's the page number. We're going to chapter seven. Chapter seven. His continual work. Uh, now, let me say, let me say in general that we understand the work of Jesus is completed. You know, it's finished on the cross. But there is some teaching in the, in the New Testament that there's, that I think that God is better than we think because Jesus is continuing to work. How many of you, do you ever get irritated that you have to keep updating your apps on your phone? <laughs> you know, I, it just drives me nuts sometimes I'm thinking. But, you know, apps are things we put on our phone or our tablet or our computer, and they're there, but now they're updating, updating. Now, why, why do they update? Why do they update them? To irritate us? No. <laughs> huh? Yeah, that's somebody's theory. I just heard them. It irritate us. Yeah. Yeah. That's their, that's their theory. They're updating because they want them to run faster. Maybe there's something they found, the original one, that, that needs to be done. But there's this continuation. This continuation. Look here in Hebrews chapter 7. <clears throat> and this, again, I think is an error where we need to think about that God's better than we generally think. In verse 23 of chapter 7. The former priest, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death. In other words, there are a lot of priests because they would die. But Jesus, 24, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever. Now, some translations have save completely, save fully, save forever. We'll look at the word here in, in some of the translations of it he's able to save forever completely fully 
those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Notice that there. He, he always lives to make intercession. Now let's look at this here for a second. The, the writer's saying, look, there used to be lots of priests because they would have a priest and then he would die. And Jesus' priesthood is forever. He has an eternal life. Uh, he has an eternal life there. He, uh, they write about earlier. And now his priesthood is forever. And because his priesthood is forever, he's able to save forever or fully or completely those who come to God who draw near through to him or draw near to God. Now notice I want you to look at a couple things. Completely. Um, the word here I think should be translated fully. Uh, it's the Greek word teleos that we generally translate perfect, complete, full grown, fully, uh, fully uh, grown. And in this understanding is that God is better, I think, than some of us think at times because he is in this continual work of saving us completely. I have it here on your hand. I think it's a little later, but I'll, I'll just say this. I think where one of the struggles here is this. Nope, I don't have it on here. Leave him alone. Okay, I want you to write this, write this, uh, write this statement down. I thought I had it on your handout. Salvation is more. I do. I don't have it on the slide. Here we go. I'll read it to you. Salvation is more than a decision. Salvation is more than a decision or a destination. Salvation is more than a decision or a destination. This idea of saving us completely is the idea, I think, that the writer is suggesting here. Is there something more to this? It's more fully. It's Jesus's continual work. Notice also in verse 25. It says he's able to save completely or fully those who draw near to God through him. The, the, the verb there, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if ESV translates this way. But it, the verb there is present durative. Drawing near and continue to draw near. Drawing near and continue to draw near. God is so good, he's saying, okay, Cliff, I'm able to save you completely or fully because you're drawing near and you continue to draw near. Ever thought about this? What, what is God saving us from? You guys are smart. When I was a kid growing up, God saved me from hell. That's what I heard. That's why I was willing to wait for a while. Really? I mean, I thought, hey, I'm not dying anytime soon. So if God's going to save me from hell, I'm going to goof around a while. I was willing to run a risk. You know, because that's, that's what you're being saved from. The, the reality is, is that what I'm being saved from is myself that doesn't understand terribly how life is lived. And my own impulses are my own issues here. So, so when he says he's going to save you fully, save me fully, it's, the, it's not just a decision that I made. Signed a card, prayed the prayer, got dunked. That's a terrible, I shouldn't say that. Got baptized. Got baptized. It's, 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 it's a decision. I'm not saying that decision isn't important. But I'm saying here, Jesus is it's saying here that he is able to save us fully as we continue to draw near. Continue, continue, continue. He's able to save fully those who draw near, continue to draw near to God on, the, on a continual basis. Here's my concern or what I talk to my students about. I grew up in a tradition, and I, and I see it, what I, what I call that there's this kind of transactional understanding of salvation. You know what a transaction is? You know, <clears throat> I pay the price, and they give me the product. It's a deal. Just, I, you know, I, I make the transaction. There's no relationship in here. It's just a transaction. I prayed a prayer. I'm in. This transactional nature. Have you ever had people in your life that the only time they were called is they wanted something? 
Don't look at anybody in here. Okay, look at the ceiling. Yeah, <laughs> I heard that. Somebody said, that. No, I'm not going to say that. Uh, that that kind of, you know when they call you, you know when they are getting hold of you, they want something, right? It's transactional. It's just this idea that I want something. How often do we understand salvation from hell or the destination to just be a transaction? Here it says, he is saving us completely. What does that mean? Well, again, it's not just a decision and it's not just a destination. Salvation is this, if you will, saving us from ourselves. The Eastern Greek church calls it this, theosis. Have you ever thought about salvation not just saving you from the penalty of sin and not just saving you from the destination of hell, but salvation is therapeutic. It's healing you. Just, like, just think of it. It's healing you. It's healing your motives. It's healing your impulses. It's healing your drives. It's healing a self-centeredness. It's healing. It's just the idea of a therapeutic theosis. That God is saving. That he is bringing about wholeness and health throughout this matter of salvation. This is better than just some prayer we pray or just some card that we sign and we say, well, we're in and we'll just make it till we get to the end of the destination. This is, in fact, this understanding of Jesus, if you will, as he intercedes for us to bring it fully. Let me tell you why that's true, I think. Salvation in the New Testament is in three tenses. Three tenses. I heard a joke the other day that the... the, uh, I heard about the past, the present, and the future went to a bar. It got tense. <laughs> That's bad. <clears throat> it got bad. <clears throat> Here, here's it. Write, write these down here, if you will. Salvation, being saved from ourselves, is a past event. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. You have been. That's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, not the result of your works. Right? So salvation is a past tense matter. Salvation is also a present tense matter. Notice this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 18. Look, go and turn there today. Go go take your table of contents. Find 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul making an argument about this new covenant, this new deal. He's remarking how that when the Jews read Moses, there's a veil over their face. They don't don't get it when when Moses is read. He said, but what, verse 16, I'm just going to jump in there. But he says, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But we all with unveiled face, when I mean, we turn to the Lord, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Just as the Lord, from the Lord, the Spirit. We're being transformed. It's a process now. We're, we're in this. Aren't you glad of that? Any, anybody in the process? <laughs> anybody? I, I was praying about something the other day, and I, the Lord just sort of disciplined me. to said, hey, we need to talk about this. Not to hurt me. I thought, hmm, I thought I had that one figured out. <laughs> and I heard this back again through the halls of heaven. Uh, not really. <laughs> this idea of being transformed. Being transformed. My cousin Mark, who died some years ago, I've told you about Mark. Mark became a Christian in several, about 37 times. Anybody the Nazarene church and the church of God saved 37 times? At youth camp. Yeah, I got Mark, Mark got saved, I think, 38, 39 times. You know. Mark had the idea 
and it was sort of taught that once you become a Christian, put your all on the altar of sacrifice lay, you know, you heard that, 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 that song, that you're fixed. He would get ready to leave church and somebody do something and he would curse. So he had to go back to the altar <laughs> and get saved again. I mean, it, you know, you, that's what you have to do. My cousin said it was like this. It's like when you first learn to ride a bike, you take the bike off the porch. You start riding. And then you fall, you, you know, you fall down. You have to pick the bike up, carry it back to the porch to start over. <laughs> Pretty dumb. <clears throat> but, but this idea of being saved. It, it, look, God, it, this is be, God is better than you can imagine. You can expect him. He's in the process of transforming you and me. That's why, that's why we continue to grow and study and learn because we're saying, Lord, I, you're not finished with me yet. I'm growing. I'm developing. And so we're being saved. Uh, Romans eleven nineteen to 22 says, You stand by your faith as you stand in the kindness of the Lord. Romans eleven nineteen to 22. You, you stand in your faith as you continue to stand in the kindness of the Lord. And then the third tense, we've got present or past, present, future. Salvation is a future matter. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 22, when he said this. He who endures to the end, that's the one who will be saved. He that endures to the end, that's the one that will be saved. So it isn't just something locked up here. It's this idea that I'm being transformed. I'm growing. I'm developing. That's interesting. In different theological schools, in the Reformed tradition, um, the, the notion here is that it's the elect who will endure to the end. That's it, right? You know, the elect. From the Wesleyan standpoint, Wesley would say this, it's those who endure to the end who the elect. We get at the same place, right? But the idea that faith is some matter in the past and faith is some matter of just some idea is some transactional thing in the past is not what the scriptures seem to say so here it is Jesus is interceding for us all those who draw near notice here I'm back in Hebrews 7 since he lives to make intercession for them now I want you to just think about that word there some of us, I think, have been affected by shame enough. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. We're talking about prayer. Sometimes they find it hard, and this person finds it hard because they're not as spiritual as I am. And uh, <laughs> that's not true. <clears throat> and we were talking about it, and I, and I just said, he said, you know, why is it I don't think to pray? Why is it that I kind of forget about it? I'll read the Bible or something like that. And I said, let me ask you to consider this. Is it difficult for you to be with a person that you don't think likes you? Is it? Maybe that's why. Does God like you? Think about this now. Our thoughts about God, He's better than we can think. It's going to be difficult for you and me to want to spend time in prayer or time talking about our life or discussing our issues if down deep in our, a good Greek word, splankna, that's the Greek word for guts, <laughs> if down in our splankna, we don't think God really likes us that much. You ever think about that? I'll tell you this, I've got some friends that when they call me on the phone, I immediately respond. You know why? I know they like me. Hard as that is to believe. <laughs> they like me. I like them. There, there, there's a sense in that. And, and here it says that Jesus lives, lives to make intercession for you. Look at that. I, I know some guys that live to play golf. What does that mean? Besides they have a problem in their brain <laughs> what what does it mean they live to play golf that's, they like it that's what they're all about 
Is it possible for you to understand here this idea that in Jesus, that he lives, he likes you, he's on your team, he's with you. This is why he can save you and I completely, because he lives to make intercession for you. Just let that come down in you. Here's what I wrote my notes. If that's true, Cliff, you can quit justifying, excusing, and defending yourself. You know why? I got someone interceding for me. I don't have to justify. I don't have to defend. I don't have to excuse myself. I can say I have someone who lives to make intercession for me. I want you to think about that. If that's how good God really is. He makes intercession. The word there uh, means, uh, if you will, uh, to make intercession. It means, if you will, to bring to pass. It's not the word in, in Latin, in the Greek, the word in Greek, it means to bring to pass. In other words, he's speaking in our behalf. He's, he's there for us to defend, to help us. So how about you? Your salvation is a past, a present, and a future. In addition to that, this notion of intercession is an ongoing experience. I have this underlined in my Bible, and I have the present tense on the side. And basically, the idea of this, Cliff, you don't ever have to worry about coming to Jesus. He's already speaking in your behalf. He lives to make intercession. To whom? To those who draw near to God through him. Okay? <clears throat> Third thing. I'm going to hurry. Sort of. His response to you. His response to you. I'm going to hear in Hebrews, turn right and go to James. <clears throat> this has always been one of my favorite passages. And I think this has, again, the notion that God is better. That we can we expect him to be better than we normally think. Our, our, our views of God are goofed up. Look at this. <clears throat> um. The, the, chapter 4, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, chapter 4. Uh, the writer here, James, this is Jesus' brother, is taking these people to task, disciplining them about some issues, about their, their friendship with the world and like that. And he says in verse 5, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he's made to dwell in us. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? That, that God is jealous for that spirit that he's put in us. He, 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 wants to, he wants to be with us. Verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 5. He jealously desires the spirit which he's made to dwell in us. You ever, you ever think about that? I mean, this again is God's better than we typically think. His response to us, he's jealous for you. He wants you. He desires you. He has a heart for you. Again, I think this comes back to this idea that we, we, we tend to think of God like our own minds instead of he jealously desires you. Notice here what else he does. He gives a greater grace. I remember years ago when I first started Sunday school, somebody asked a question one time. They said, we were talking about grace, and they said, well, are there degrees of grace? And several people said, no. And I said, yes. <laughs> there it is. Notice what it says. He gives a greater grace. Therefore, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know what the greater grace is here? For humble people. Why is there greater grace for the humble? Because they're able to receive it. The proud say, I don't need grace. I got this covered. I'm, I'm okay. Look, our humility, our willingness to come under God's authority means there's greater grace available. I don't have time to do all this. I want to go to the first one here, though. Verse 7 Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Here's what I want to hit. Verse 8. Draw near to God. And what will happen? He will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify with your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable to mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I want you to just consider something here. What does it say? Draw near to God, and He will then do what? Draw near to you, and then what are you going to do? See it there in verse 8? Yeah. You know, this is exactly opposite of the Old Testament. If you were going to draw near to God, what did you have to do first? Take a bath, a mikvah. In fact, if you go, want to go look at this later, go to, uh, go to Psalm 24, verses 3 to 4. Who shall ascend to the holy hill and who shall inhabit the temple of the Lord? You know what it says next? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So who gets to draw near to God? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart. What does James say here? You draw near to him first, you'll have the energy to do what? Clean your hands and deal with your stuff. This is seen not achievement theology. This is receiving theology. This isn't clean your hands up, get your act together, and then you can draw near to God. This is draw near to God. He will then draw near to you and then cleanse your... The, the sequence is completely reversed to the Old Testament. Completely reversed. And so this idea of this contrast of how will God respond to you when you draw near? Now, how do you do that? That's a great question. Answer it. <laughs> how do you draw near to God? How do you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bring it there. Yeah. 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 Just come to him as honestly. That's right. He already knows. You know, be, be honest, be open and say, Lord, I, I need you. I mean, you, we've done this before. We've drawn near to God. There, there's no magic to it. It's to say, okay, I'm going to quit running or I'm going to quit trying to defend or I'm going to quit trying to decide. I'm just going to draw near to God and say, I need your help. And also, <clears throat> Well, it says there, resist the devil. Yeah. 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 So he says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil. He'll flee from you, then draw near to God. Do you think that God is that responsive to you? Absolutely. Because God is love. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yes. Mm hmm. That's right. So here's the promise. He says, if you'll draw near, what's God's response? He'll draw near. He'll draw near to you. And that may mean that you just get honest with him. As Bernie said, you just get honest with him. Or you just say, take some time to sit there. I've just said to God before, hey, I'm just here. That's all I know to tell you. I'm just here. But this idea of is God, what can you expect from him? Is he better than you think? Or is he just some projection of our own thinking about God? This verse has been one that I mean, I've laid on and laid on and laid on and said, Lord, you said that if I would draw near, you would draw near. See, I want to do it opposite. I want to get cleaned up. I want to be able to recommend myself. I want to say, look at all I've done over here. Look how, how, how hard I've worked. And now I'll draw near. Anybody with me in that group? Uh-huh. Well, we are all in recovery. But, but the idea here is the exact opposite. The exact opposite is to draw near to God. He will draw near to you. You will then have the energy, if you will, to cleanse your hands, purify your heart, and deal with your stuff. So, what are you going to do about that? Let me ask you to consider this this week. What if today, right now, that's the wrong one. <laughs> brother. I tell you, I'm on. There he is again. <laughs> I'm sorry. I tell you guys, I've been, I, sheesh. 
These antibiotics must be doing something to me. Nope, here it is. I'll read it to you. <clears throat> what if you believe that God is better than you normally think? And just haul off and draw near. What if you just believe that God is better than you normally think? And just haul off and draw near to God. Do it by prayer, through music, your thoughts. And here's the po critical point. And refuse to assess your worthiness to do so. That's the key. And refuse to assess your worthiness to do so. Don't sit there and think, well, you know, I can't draw near to God because. Or, you know, I, I can't draw near to God, you know, here. Re be willing to refuse it. So, here it again. What if you believe God's better than you think and just haul off and draw near to God in prayer, in your thoughts, through music, however, and refuse to assess your worthiness to do so. I want to tell you why. God's better than you think. God's better than you think. God's better than I think. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's uh, hard for us in the world that we live in and the, sometimes the cultures we've grown up in <clears throat> and the churches that we've been a part of to not think <clears throat> that maybe you're not that good. Maybe you're more like us when we know that the whole plan of the gospel is to make us more like you. So help us and guide us correct our thoughts, heal our hearts, help us as we draw near to Jesus that he can save us fully and completely. This can only happen because of you. And we submit ourselves and humble ourselves before you to do that. Pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen.